what needs to happen is there has to be a complete overhaul and the zeitgeist of our culture, right? And Donald Trump represents that, whether we like it or not. I've, I've long argued that there will, ha there will be at some point somebody who comes along who's going to be cataclysmic. He's going to have to introduce a discontinuous change to use that parlance, right? So by the same token that Trump is now going to be occupying the White House, there has to be a similar cataclysmic shift in our educational systems. As we begin to heal on the other side of a incredibly painful presidential election, we're left with deep cultural divides, and they frankly have been growing there for a while. So it's worth taking a giant step back and examining ourselves and the insulated bubbles that we put ourselves in. As comfortable as this social insulation is, it, well, along with a culture of intense sensitivity that lobotomizes what we say for fear of any kind of offense of others, keeps us from the free exchange of ideas. And instead, we perceive someone with even the smallest deviation from our point of view as one of them. While those with extreme liberal views fight for an unrealistic level of absolute inclusion, which flies in the face of our objective differences, extreme conservatives feel their side of the coin is just as right, and they passionately defend their own strict point of view and seek inclusion as well. Both sides arm themselves with friends and Facebook feeds, which reinforce and fuel what they already believe. So it's worth taking a step out of that fray and examining ourselves and, yes, fearlessly climbing out of our safe and comfy pods to try to understand and accept people who are different. I mean, really try. This week's guest, Professor God Saad, who is affectionately called the Gadfather, is a popular evolutionary psychologist who applies science to how we consume ideas, products, and perspectives. He has a couple books, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption and The Consuming Instinct, and he also hosts a popular YouTube channel called The Sad Truth, which critiques political correctness, the ideology of multiculturalism, and it goes against the grain of incredibly homogenous and overly sensitive academic environments. Besides the election, Gad and I take on how our culture has grown to be so divided, how it's continually censored, how we listen, share, and debate ideas. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. (laughs) 
So, Gad, I, I wanted to talk to you because I guess, what are we, 24 hours after for me? It's been 24 hours because I didn't stay up all night long watching the election. But um, it's about 24 hours since waking up to the news that Trump won. And definitely, at least here in our ivory tower of a blue state in California, um, you know, a huge shockwave of waking up to the fact that uh, Donald Trump had won. Um, and it got me thinking a little bit about um, about othering, actually, and the and the kind of comfort bubbles that we live in. And I started thinking about that from an anthropological perspective. Um, I started thinking about like, you know, what what was really going on here, and a lot of the narrative kind of um, differences that we've created. Uh, throughout the country. And so I was really excited when, because uh, your name has been brought up a number of times to me. And when I started thinking about it, I was like, wow, here's someone who studies evolutionary psychology and how it f affects us from uh, within our consumptive culture. And I thought, man, this, you know, getting you on the show and getting your perspective of not only what's gone on here and kind of what uh, what our road ahead of us looks like, but you know, then backing up a little bit and talking um, uh, really about the work that you've done, which is so fascinating. So, if that's okay with you, uh, I'd love to jump in with that, and maybe we can start with, you know, first, if you don't mind, quickly explaining what what does that mean that evolutionary psychology meets um, kind of consumptive culture study framework that you have, and then right. um, and then yeah, the lens of of how that might be used when you look at the election would be fascinating. Gotcha. Uh, first, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I, I saw your list of uh, wonderful guests and I thought, because I receive, frankly, many invitations and oftentimes if I don't know the person, I can go to their podcast to get a sense of who they are and I thought that you were doing a wonderful job, so it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Oh, uh, you. Uh, so, so what I basically do is I take evolutionary principles and then I demonstrate how they manifest themselves when we put on our hats as consumers. Now, I define consumption very broadly. So, so it's not just the, you know, the consumption of Coca-Cola and wearing jeans and Starbucks, but we also consume friendships, we consume religious narratives, we consume political campaigns, uh, we consume uh, mates, not, not in a kind of ballistic sense, but in the sense right. of all of the evolutionary mechanisms that cause us to choose one mate over another. And so then what I do is I say, well, of course we are cultural animals, and that's what where most social scientists uh, would agree that you know culture affects our behaviors. But where regrettably most social scientists have miserably failed is that they have abdicated the role of biology in explaining human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And so what I basically do is I introduce evolutionary theory. I Darwinize the field of consumer behavior. So just to give you a few examples that maybe some of your viewers may or may not be familiar with. So I look at things like how how does testosterone affect uh, men when they engage in an act of conspicuous consumption? If I put you in a Porsche so that I am imbuing you with immediate social status, will there be an endocrinological response of your system akin to how we see in the animal kingdom if two males fight, the winner has a rise in his testosterone the loser has a drop. So that would be one example of a study I've done. Mm -hmm. uh, on the opposite side, when it comes to, for example, female-based hormones, I've looked at things like, how does the menstrual cycle affect women's uh, consumer desires, preferences, choices? And so I looked at things like food-related consumption or beautification. So for example, women are much more likely to beautify themselves when they are ovulating, very much in line with what female mammals do in other species, right? When they're in estrus, they signal themselves. And so, right. the, the, so the general idea is 
to demonstrate that you know the inden the indelible forces of evolution that have shaped our minds and our bodies don't suddenly mysteriously disappear when we put on our consumer hats that makes sense and so just to paraphrase a little bit so that I understand consumption, you're really meaning the way that we buy ideas in a way inside of ourselves. So when we're purchasing certain um, uh, ideas, or it's not just like the actual purchase of something, but the purchasing of, of, of ideas as well. C certainly. I mean, to the extent that we, for example, when, when you are reading my books, in a sense, you are consuming my ideas. I am parasitizing your brains with my memes. And so that's what I mean when I say that I, def I define consumption very broadly. Yeah. Uh, and this allows me then to study phenomena under the rubric of consumption using an evolutionary lens, which otherwise people would typically not link with one another. Okay, so let's talk about the ideas that are being and not being purchased through... Um, the last electoral cycle here, you know, through this election. So how might you be using that lens to look at the election? Right. Yeah. Beautiful question. Uh, so there are several ways that we could apply evolutionary theory to inform, uh, well, political marketing and political choices in general. And then we could link it to this particular one if we want. So, for example, what are the types of attributes that people look for in political candidates itself would be under the purview of hmm. an evolutionary lens. So for example, all other things equal, we know that historically in the United States, the taller candidate has one way above chance level, right? And that's because height, all other things equal, is a cue uh, that is interesting, that is, that is related to dominance, right, to social status. And so things like uh, whether you have certain facial features that are strong markers of testosterone would be things that all other things equal are attractive. Ross Perot, for those of you who might remember who he is, <laughs> uh, or Michael Dukakis uh, right. are guys that I could have told you were unlikely to win because they didn't exude that type of dominance. Uh, so the idea is that we could use evolutionary theory to get a sense of what are the types of cues that people use? What are the types of fast and frugal heuristics that people use in deciding if someone looks presidential or not? And, I, and for those of you who might think, oh, well, this sounds very academic, but is it really truly applied? Well, if you look at how the camps of both parties will typically sit there and negotiate where the podium is going to be placed and whether you're going to show them as one being taller than the other, they certainly seem to know these Darwinian imperatives quite well. That's right. You so know, that I, I had yeah. Franz Duval, uh, Duval on the show, who's sure. a, a very famous primatologist. He was actually talking about the same thing about Trump and how... Um, alpha, you know, how he exhibits the same kind of alpha male uh, qualities that you would see in bonobos or, or chimps or apes or, you know, a lot of the different primates. So I, I, th I think that very much maps to what you're talking about. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I, I very much love his work and it, we're, we're friends on Facebook. Hmm. Uh, but in any case, uh, so the second way that we could apply, uh, I mean, in part evolutionary psychology, but more generally psychology of decision making to this political decision making is to look at the types of strategies that people use when they make decisions. So for example, one strategy we can use is to look at all of the attributes that define each candidate, give a weight to each of the attributes, and then come up with a summation of all of the attributes in deciding whether Clinton or Trump is better as an overall ca candidate. This is called the weighted additive rule, meaning that you are really looking at who is the overall best package when you weigh in all of the attributes that are relevant. Okay. And in that case, one can make the argument that 
when you look at that whole package, maybe you know we should have expected Clinton to win. On the other hand, there are endless other decision rules that people could use that would not yield a Clinton victory. So let me give you one example. So there's a rule uh, called the lexicographic rule, which basically says, look at your most important attribute, that the most important attribute to you. So for example, if I'm choosing toothpaste, my most important attribute might be price. The one that is the lowest price is the one that I choose, okay? So lexicographic rule basically says, look at the most important attribute for you and choose that candidate that scores better only on that attribute. That's the only thing I'm going to do. So let's suppose I am uniquely concerned with uh, the immigration issue. In other words, I'm going to use the lexicographic rule using only how the candidates score on immigration. That's my only information Lever. that I yeah, exactly. Well, in that case, one could easily argue that if that's what I care about and I score Trump higher on immigration than I do uh, Clinton, uh, then I will choose Trump. So in other right. words, there are very, very clear, easily understandable mechanisms, decision rules, heuristics that could lead to somebody choosing Trump without being, you know, a Nazi bigot and a toothless hick who denies evolution and an irrational, uh, you know, Islamophobe. Uh, so, you know, I know many people who are very intelligent and sophisticated, not many of them necessarily in academia, who voted for Trump. And I know for a fact that they're not card-carrying members of the Nazi party or the KKK. Right. So we need to be a bit more nuanced in our thinking. Right. So uh, there's a kind of a... Uh... I guess a, a thing that we do as humans to survive often, I mean, uh, to categorize things because it gives us a an opportunity to not have to absorb as many of the details. So if I look at, at, at someone who voted, who had that view of, you know, immigration or maybe it was taxes and that was what was really important to them and everything else kind of went by the wayside, I might lump them and, uh, and the rest of the attributes that I bring to someone who may make a decision like that to that person. So I might say, well, you know, since you feel that way on immigration, you clearly feel that way on guns and abortion and everything else, because that's what all of you people or, or the others in your category believe. And so there is actually uh, a, a class of decision rules that people use, which is very much evolutionary based. They're called fast and frugal heuristics. Hmm. They're, fa they're fast in that they're computationally non-costly, they're shortcuts, and they're frugal in that uh, they're cognitively uh, effortless, right? They don't, they don't require so much effort on my part to arrive at a choice. Well, there's very clear evolutionary arguments to be made for why when an organism is facing all sorts of difficult decisions that they would want to use computationally simple and fast decisions, right? If if you have to sit there and ma maximize some utility function for four hours before you make a choice of where you're going to go forage for food, well, somebody's going to eat you before you end up uh, foraging for that food, right? So fast and frugal heuristics, which was were really developed by a German psychologist and his group, his name is Gerd, Gerd Gigeranzer, speak exactly to what you're talking about, right? So for example, there's something called the recognition heuristic, which basically says, uh, I choose that which I recognize. And so let me give you a, a great example of the manifestation of this heuristic. So if you take a bunch of stocks that you could invest in, right, companies that you could invest in, well, you could either apply an unbelievably sophisticated mathematical model to choose the optimal stock using some <laughs> PhD in mathematics, or you could simply go down the list of companies and simply choose the one that you, which you recognize. Oh, Coca-Cola, I recognize. Ford, I recognize. And if you only use this unbelievably naive 
heuristic, it ends up performing as well as the phenomenally sophisticated mathematical model. So there are contexts where wow. using these very sort of brute, simple heuristics works out. Other cases, it doesn't. Wow. And so, yeah, so there you go. That's amazing. Uh I would love to talk to you a little bit about because one of the things that I thought about with this election after the fact was like over the last 24 hours or so was really about this. There's a phrase in Silicon Valley, which is where I'm based, uh, that you hear now and then that and you may have heard it. But the, the phrase is something like I'll probably screw this up, but it's like in a bacon and eggs breakfast, the pigs have a lot more skin in the game than the chickens. Right. Because the, the chickens are, are are involved. Right. Like they're giving you an egg, maybe. But the pigs are very committed to that meal. And one of the things that really struck me in uh, the last 24 hours was when you back up from the candidates themselves and you think more about the movements that were going on socially within the country uh, I think that a, a lot of what uh, is going on here that was resonating for a, uh, for a lot of people behind Trump, behind the uh, campaign of Trump, is that <coughs> government, uh, there's this, this friction between government and the people where the people feel like government are chickens. They're, they're involved with us, but they're not really committed to us. They're not really, you know, there's a lot more intelligence because of the internet and a lot of other things where people out there understand like when it comes to health or when it comes to finance or when it comes to business or it comes to all these issues that there's a massive disconnect and kind of an out of touch quality that the people in government have versus the information that we have. For example, like, a, a you know, there's still labeling uh, some health bars that are made with 100% organic nuts as unhealthy for you because it has too much fat, which is a relic of the 80s or whatever, right? So I I'm curious, uh, from a from your perspective, where we've got, uh, you know, this, this campaign where we're kind of othering so much, whether, um, you know, what your view of that really is that disconnect. So I mean, I, I can speak to the disconnect between the government and the populace, as you said, but I think, you know, where I might be able to even speak with, with better sort of first account perspective, is the disconnect between academics and the regular people. Okay? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, which which could be served, which could serve as a proxy for the for this for the other discussion. Uh, look, I mean, it is extraordinary for me to see on my Facebook wall the complete unanimity of every single academic on every possible issue. Statistically speaking, it simply can't be, right? I mean, the world is a complex world where there isn't always a clear answer as to what is the optimal fiscal policy, mm -hmm. whether affirmative action is a good idea or not, whether the death penalty is cruel or appropriate for certain crimes, right? The natural variation across people, certainly intellectual, sophisticated, educated people, should be that we should expect some heterogeneity in their preferences, in their attitudes, in their positions. Yet, when I look at all of their positions, they are one consistent flock, one perfect herd. Uh -huh. Not one person steps out of bounds, right? And so what happens is you create this perfect, this insular, this impenetrable echo chamber, where, I mean, you wanna talk about othering, I see them, these are sophisticated intellectual people saying things like, well, of course Trump won since 
you know, much of the, the United States is made up of misogynists, racists, bigots, you know, Nazi folks. I mean, right. I mean, think about it, right? Someone can put out a tweet as an academic that is incredibly less marginalizing than that. And their career, regrettably, is, is almost ruined, if not ruined. Yet people feel perfectly comfortable saying that 50 plus million people are all, I mean, well, the basket of deplorables, right? Right. They're all bigots. They're all Nazis. They're all toothless hicks from Alabama who are growing a tail because they're not quite homo sapiens. <laughs> that can't be right. That is not the discourse that a truly intelligent, nuanced person says. And so why does that happen? Well, because you never receive any feedback or pushback against your positions because the flock walks in step. It never meets any resistance. And then comes along Gatsad, who doesn't walk to that step, right? Now, people usually avoid having these confrontations with me because typically they can't defend their position because it's driven by emotion, right? I mean, it's very difficult to defend a position that 50 million people are all Nazi bigots, but it feels emotionally right, right? And, and everybody supports me that everybody is a Nazi bigot, so I can happily exist in my echo chamber, never being unencumbered by the opinions of others. You know, it's not uncommon to have uh, flocks standardize their points of view, but where it's troubling, to your point, is in academics, because, you know, that's where so much shaping, you know, the, the, the responsibility of academia and, and in um, having healthy uh, tension points is in in having different voices, right? Because that's what allows you to create your own uh, and to see different points of view. So uh, I guess I'm not surprised on one hand that there is so much insulation, uh, insular kind of thinking. Uh, and on the other hand, it's 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 crazy because I got to tell you, just last night in, in preparing to even talk to you, and I've got a kid in, in, in college, um, and, and I started to kind of look at, at some of the things that you were talking about going on at universities, and it, it kind of... Uh, wow, it, it shocked me in a way. Um, and there's always been, I think, at least in my life as a kid of the 70s and going through a lot of civil rights movements and so forth, that that there's been this kind of, uh, at least in the last, you know, I don't know, 100 years or so, uh, a, a slow evolution of... Uh, of uh, of rights based movements where the younger generation is trying to create this tension point with the older gener generation, but when I started to take a look and start and, and learn about triggers and safe places and micro assaults and micro insults and micro inclusions and all of these different things, I thought, what the fuck is going on here? Like, what? Right. It's almost like an entitlement bubble that uh, people are sticking themselves in. And that's dangerous because it creates even more of a schism when all of those people get out into, into culture. And then there's all the people who never were part of that discourse and it creates even more division. And then it creates Trump because... Uh, the people who are not at Stanford and Berkeley, who don't exist in the uh, bizarro world of safe spaces and microaggressions and uh, trigger warnings, who live in the real world, who are Darwinian beings, who recognize competition, who recognize strife, who recognize that your boss may have different opinions from you and your coworkers may have different opinions from you, right. then they say, what is going on? We've had enough. Now, the government, to some extent, who who... who 
it is inhabited, so to go back to your earlier point, is inhabited by people who came from Stanford and Berkeley. And therefore, they recreate that echo chamber on a grander scale. And the average common person says, I'm tired of it. I won't have it anymore. I don't want to be called a racist. I should be allowed to speak my mind without being truly marginalized, truly othered, right? Uh, look, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you saw my my talk that I gave at the University of Ottawa on the thought police. I mean, I what, what I tried to do in this talk was to sort of come up with as many examples of absolute lunacy that is happening at universities. I saw it. That if I, okay, so if, if I were coming up with satire, right, if, if Saturday Night Live hired me to come up with as wild a set of examples that are not truly real, that didn't happen, you're, you're engaging in hyperbole to demonstrate something, I couldn't come up with stuff that is as wild as this, okay, right? Okay, share the MLK one. <laughs> okay. Oh, so that's the test that you actually did watch it. So that was, I think, at the University of Oregon, where some students were triggered and bothered that Martin Luther King had not been sufficiently inclusive in his message, because while he had looked at sort of the the race-based issue. He hadn't, you know, included the LGBT and the XBLTMCF1247 and so on, right? <laughs> and so if Martin Luther King, as I argued in that lecture, is not safe from the ire of those folks, you better keep quiet because nobody is safe. And, you know, this is one thing that struck me, too. And, and when you were talking about in that uh, lecture that you gave, it reminded me a little bit of I don't know. Uh, and I've referenced this book probably too many times on this show. Uh, and I know he's going to be a guest soon, too, actually. But have you read uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens? I don't think so. OK, I think I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So he, uh, in that book, uh, one of the great things that he did that really opened my brain up a whole bunch was talk a little bit about us uh, as 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 animals, as people over time, and how, um, well, lots of different things, but a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, since you do study evolutionary uh, psychology and, and consumption, is that, you know, the, the idea of rights um, is is made up. It's it's a fiction, right? So the idea that there's equality among all people is bullshit because there are people who are stronger and smarter and uh, there's inequality everywhere, right? But the the constitutional point of view that this country uh, has created, and it's not all countries on the planet, even today. I mean, there's still countries with with generalized caste systems involved with their cultures. But in this cult, in this culture that we've manifested, uh, you know, two and a half uh, hundred years ago, you know, we created this this narrative of of, of equality being. Uh, and a level playing field being um, this God, this the spirits have given us this God-given right to be equal. And I think we've taken, and, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of some of those ideas, but it is something that we've made up as animals to live within. So um, I think what's happened is, is we've almost... Uh, exploded that idea into something that has taken us back to the original problem, which is othering, right? Which is this human instinct. And this is one of the other points he makes in this group is that there's lots of species that lived at the same time uh, that were different kinds of humans, but like Neanderthals, for example, and we would systematically just destroy them because they weren't like us is the theory. So the theory is, is we will always other back to categorization and we will always do that. 
so so much so many different possibilities to go with your uh, your lead-in. So let me try to remember a few of them. So first, let me give you a sense of why this sort of equality, where that equality narrative comes from. We should first, and then I want to talk about sort of the coalitional stuff that you talked about, the, the othering. So let's try to remember those two things. Uh, look, equality under the law is a wonderful, lofty thing that uh, you know any classical liberal person should support. But equality under the law is oftentimes conflated with equal potentiality and equality of outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. That this is exactly what happens with radical feminists, right? Uh, because they wish to have equality of the sexes, which any liberal should support, I certainly support that, mm -hmm. uh, then they think that if you offer a scientific narrative that argues that men and women might have some innate differences, then that helps in promoting the quote, sexist status quo. So therefore, they, they, they confuse uh, indistinguishable under nature as being equal but different under nature, right? Uh, men and women are different. Uh, our species is referred to as a sexually dimorphic species. No biologist contests that. We're defined as such. Therefore, by definition, we have innate sex differences. Yet, of course, that doesn't mean that men or women should be systematically discriminated against in a liberal and just society. So that's one of the first problems that you see. Now, where does this uh, sort of equal potentiality come from? It comes from a view of the human mind that is profoundly idiotic, which is basically the tabula rasa perspective, mm -hmm. the, the, the mind as an empty slate, right? So the argument is that the only the thing that made Sam and Gad different, when, because when we were born, we were exactly equal. It's that our unique socialization, our unique environmental experiences that then shaped us into taking the different trajectories that we've had. Now, that's a very hopeful message because on the one hand, it promises that, hey, we could all be Michael Jordan. We could all be Lionel Messi and we could all be Albert Einstein if only the right socialization forces and the right environmental inputs are provided to us. So that's a hopeful message, but it's an idiotic message that only a buffoon could argue, right? We are, we, of course we are products of our socialization. Of course our unique personhoods are shaped by unique environmental realities that we face, but we also have biological blueprints that Makes it like makes it such that Michael Jordan was endowed with a unique set of skills that I could have never overcome to become Michael Jordan, if only because he's much taller than me, and no amount of socialization could have fixed that. So the problem, to going back to the first question you asked me about what what do I do in my research, this comes from uh, so, uh, social scientists who were desperate to eradicate biology from the discussion. So for example, cultural anthropologists argued that there is no such thing as, a, as human universals. There's no such thing as human nature. Every culture has to be looked in its own idiosyncratic bubble and to talk about instincts and human nature is laughable. Well, I mean, an average two-year-old knows that that's false, right? An average two-year-old starts to categorize things in a binary way as male or female. So that's the first problem. So we are, we should be equal under the law, but we're not all equal in, their, in our capacities. Some work harder, some work, some are more lazy, some are taller, some have, some have green eyes. Uh, regarding your coalitional uh, point, your uh, the, the othering, the tribal thing. I talk about this in my books, and that's really the idea that there is an innate mechanism, a computational system in our brain that is very sort of tribal in the manner in which it views the world. It's us versus them. Let me give you a great example of that. So I'm Jewish. I'm not sure if, if you are or not. I am but, Jewish. Uh, there you go. Uh, 
the reason I'm saying this will be evident in a second. So at one point, I used to live in a neighborhood in Montreal that was, uh, you know, full of uh, Hasidic people, right? Uh, uh, or ultra-Orthodox Jews. I mean, I wasn't one of them, but they, they were. Uh, now, you would think when you see all these guys that, if anything, they are all part of one tribe. I mean, not only are they Jews, not only are they religious and conservative, they're ultra-Orthodox Hasidic. So they're all the same. Well, guess what? In its infinite capacity to ever delineate us versus them, they had a rule whereby, you know, the Polish ultra-Orthodox did not ever allow their daughters to marry those heathen pigs uh, from Hungary. Okay, <laughs> so even within the context of an incredibly rarefied and pure, pure group as ultra-Orthodox Jews, people still found a way to create us versus them. So regrettably, I think this is part of the indelible marks of our brains. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because uh, back to categorization, it's too it takes too much gasoline in our brain to get into those details. So the natural you know, the natural tendency of people is to just uh, simplify things because, I mean, imagine what the world would be like unless uh, in any other situation. Um, and the narrative, though, that going back to what you said, that differences are dangerous from this kind of hyper liberal point of view um, is uh, is right in the face of the fact that there are differences in the world and we need to uh, understand that that's okay, that's okay, right? Like that that's that's and celebrate those things and realize, like you said, that look, laws are there in order to protect, you know, hate from happening and um, injustice from happening. But that to 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 have a conversation with the language police, as you put it, where we are uh, sequestering the ideas that we have inside of us because we can't get them out because we're so fucking wrapped up with offending this culture of offense. So I'd be curious, you know, from also from your point of view, like how, how does this limit this free change of, of ideas? Because if so many of, of, of these people are going through college and then ending up either in government or in society, and then you've got a whole other uh, chunk of the population who have do not have that experience, you know, what does the, where does the future look, you know, what does the future look like? And how do we get around this, this, I, you know, America is a free speech uh, country? Well, f f frankly, it leads to downstream products called people who are lobotomized. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the best way I could put it. I mean, they are, they have been not surgically lobotomized, but they have been lobotomized by an educational system that exacts exactly does what you're saying which is shackles them so much that they are afraid to utter a single syllable that might prove to be uh politically incorrect and hence cause them uh, cause offense to somebody look ideas are judged on their veracity right so think about in mathematical logic right you have you have you have a mathematical statement that then could be ascribed a value of true or false binary zero or one right it doesn't care about your feelings it doesn't care about your offense so when you and i are discussing ideas while we wish to be polite to each other and respectful and courteous ultimately if i'm trying to convince you of a point and you're trying to do the opposite with me uh, the same thing with me then we 
present all of our evidence and then let the best idea win. I mean, that's what the scientific method does. Mm -hmm. So I don't care whether the facts that I give you will cause you offense if my goal is to demonstrate to you that my position is the vertical one. So the problem is that what is the objective function that you're trying to maximize? If the objective function is don't offend anybody, then you're going to end up with a different educational system than if if the goal is teach people how to critically think, defend their positions and so on. So we went from believing in the the latter to going to the former. Now look, let's take an example going back to are all things equal and so on. All cultures are not equal, right? In the same way that all humans are not equal. Some are taller, some are thinner, some are fatter, some are harder working. Uh, the idea, though, is that, you know, who are we to judge cultures, right? I mean, who are we to judge whether these particular people cut off the clitorises of their women? Who are we to judge if these folks uh, take child brides while we don't? Well, if you've got a functioning brain, then you recognize that there are certain moral imperatives that are either correct or incorrect. So we can agree that there are absolute moral standards, you know, child abuse should not be tolerated, even though in your exotic culture somewhere, it might be tolerated. Or at least it's not tolerated if you wish to be a member of my society. And I have a right to say, if you wish to adhere by those values, then you are not welcome in my society. It shouldn't take so much courage to state this profoundly obvious statement, right? If you come to my house as a guest, but you'd like to rape my children, you're not welcome as my guest, right? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not drawing a, a comparison between rape and certain culture. I'm just giving a, a separate example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you are not a nice person who hurls racist insults, I have a right to choose to not be your friend. So in the same way that we make these decisions every day as to who can come into our house, who we're friends with or not, why can't we, by the same logic, decide that we only let in people into our country, irrespective of their religion, color, anything, as long as they adhere to our values? Well, what stops us from saying that is the, the ideology that came out of all the ivory tower that says that cultural and moral relativism is a lofty thing to believe in, because otherwise we are engaging in hegemonic imperialism with our cultural values. Bullshit, right? Uh, you can't abuse children, you can't harm women, you can't throw gays off buildings, and those are our values. And if you don't like them, you're not welcome here. If you do like them, come on in, my brother, right? So this should be so trivially easy to navigate across, but we can't because we've been so parasitized in our brains by political correctness. So is there a way around this? Because it feels like that, um, you know, and maybe maybe what we just saw happen in the election is actually people, you know, back to back to this beginning part of the conversation. They're just kind of going, look, um, everything that you people in that tower are saying does not make sense to us. We're looking for a way. I mean, all this like grabbing by the pussy and uh, all, uh, all the things that Trump said, which are very insulting. There's a lot of people that I talked to that were like, well, look, man, that's just the way, you know, look, I, I get it. And I don't I don't think that's the right behavior in reality. But people talk shit all the time. And, you know, and, and we should really be a nation of people that can just uh, say what you want to say as long as it's, you know, as long as it's not illegal, you should be able to just kind of voice whatever it is that you're thinking. You know, you can make fun of people if you want to or whatever. Not that I agree with that, which I oftentimes don't. But um, 
I just wonder if 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 what we're seeing is uh, a little bit of a pushback of decades of holding back what uh, a voice, you know, a certain voice that lives inside of us that we're thinking but not saying, and it's just kind of like we've we've put pressure on the water balloon and it's bulging out on the other side. Uh, absolutely. Look, uh, there are two types of warriors. Uh, social justice warriors are not real warriors. They're uh, they're castrated uh, folks. Uh, Real warriors come in two varieties. There's the Navy SEALs, the physical warrior, and then there's the intellectual warrior, right? Christopher Hitchens is a is a intellectual warrior. When he goes into battle, you better come prepared or else he's taking no prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, what we need to do is teach people uh, that that is a lofty thing to aspire to. Now, always being polite, always being respectful, not insulting, but the idea that I should have the self-confidence to be able to express myself fully, that no ideas are beyond uh, mocking or ridiculing or scrutiny or exposure. Uh, the fact that uh, uh, there is no, no such thing as, but this might cause offense, that I don't care about this. I'm not, I don't care if you're saddened by my position or that you're disappointed by my position or you are offended, right? If you have a better position, present to me your cogent arguments. So. What, so to answer your question, what needs to happen is there has to be a complete overhaul in the zeitgeist of our culture, right? And Donald Trump represents that, whether we like it or not. I've, I've long argued that there will, ha there will be at some point, not to sound prophetic, somebody who comes along, I didn't know whether it was going to be Trump or somebody else, who's going to be cataclysmic. He's going to have to introduce a discontinuous change to use that parlance, right? Uh, Hillary Clinton did not represent that. Hillary Clinton could not be anymore the representation of the incestuous bullshit that we're talking about, right? She is the queen of that, right? So, and that doesn't mean, by the way, that me saying that, that I support Trump and not Clinton. I'm just honest, right? So by the same token that Trump is now going to be occupying the White House, there has to be a similar cataclysmic shift in our educational system so that folks like if I may be so modest as to say, like me, are cloned in many forms so that we become not the small, courageous minority, but the normal representation of what it is to be an academic. Somebody who is bold, who's courageous, who pursues the truth unencumbered by political correctness. And that's how you then imprint those values on your students. And then hopefully they also become courageous warriors for the truth. Yeah, let's God go. Damn, I, I, sh I, I should be prime minister. God no kidding. Damn. I'm voting for you next year. Um, so, you know, I just had Wim Hof on the show. Um, right. Uh, this past week. He uh, is, for those of you who do not uh, have not heard that or are not familiar with Wim Hof, um, he is someone who subjects himself to extreme discomfort and can do pretty much superhuman things, uh, swim underwater in un under uh, ice water for very long periods of time, uh, be submerged in ice for almost a couple hours, uh, hike up, you know, mountains like in his underwear or whatever. Um, and he can moderate his uh, internal temperature through being uh, being in that in that duress and also. Um, breathing differently, changing the alkalinity of his blood, etc. Anyway, my point is, is that our conversation was all about getting out of the bubble in order to grow, um, in order to um, find yourself 
in, in a place where you're evolving beyond your current state, right? And education is a standardization process and many times like you said it's gotten almost to the extreme standardization where now points of view are standardized classes are standardized the people on the other side of it become standardized um and so i really love this idea you're almost talking about the sperm competition of ideas <laughs> exactly right exactly let me draw another medical analogy and it's it's not mine but it's 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 so brilliant that i wish i had come up with it there's a gentleman a neuropsychiatrist who's, who's gotten in touch with me uh who proposed the following sort of analogy so if you uh if you look at uh children who have either been exposed to allergens in their childhood or not, or if they've grown up in a very sterile environment, that predicts whether they develop respiratory problems like asthma. And the idea being that if they've been exposed to allergens, actually that triggers their immune system to eventually then downstream respond properly to asthma. If you grow up in too sterile an environment, uh, if you have a mother or father who was OCD about cleaning everything so that every time you walk into your house, it's a hospital room, you're more likely to, to develop respiratory problems. Now, he took this idea, which comes from evolutionary medicine, and he applied it brilliantly. He analogized it to the safe spaces that we're seeing on campuses, right? So you create a... A, a sterile echo chamber, as we were talking, where these kids are absolutely not exposed to any allergens, where the allergens are called other ideas, and therefore you end up with people who suffer from acute asthma, or in this case, they're lobotomized, right? And so that's what we need to do is mix it up. The university is not a safe space. It's not a hospital room. It's a place where we go and debate all ideas and we develop the set of skills that helps us weed which idea is good and which idea is bad. And if we don't do that, then we are we are violating the first principle, the raison d'etre, the objective of what it is to be an educated person. Well, look, I mean, whether it's education or it's just like you were saying the hasidic jews or it's me and my little social group we all are guilty of of not building a bridge or spending any time in any other group right like the people who talk so much about equality and so much about uh you know, fiscal uh reappropriation of funds so there's less of this division going on really only th then they go back to jump in their tesla and go to their super expensive house and and they don't actually spend they, they don't really do the things that they're talking about um short of maybe you know paying the taxes differently so we all are guilty of this right we all in universities there's no in invitation um, of bringing people who aren't going into college into that classroom and to have conversations with them about these topics either, right? Right, true. But I say some of us are less guilty of it than others. And so, so sort of to link what you're saying uh, to uh, sort of my quest, quest for public outreach, I've often uh, chastised my colleagues for living in their academic bubbles, not only in the context of what we're talking about, but even in terms of their professional pursuits. So for example, most of them are you know, very good academics. They publish in the journals that they've been trained to publish in. And of course, we all have to do that as scientists. I mean, we're, we're mandated to advance knowledge. But what they forget is that there's another part of your mandate as an academic, as a scientist, as a public intellectual. And that is to get out there, build bridges with the public, and weigh in on important issues, 
if not, if you don't want to weigh in on important issues, then at least popularize the science that you do, right? If you're doing truly interesting stuff, people want to hear about it. If you live in a country like Canada, where my salary is literally paid by taxpayer money, then I owe the public to get out there and share whatever positions that I have with them. And so, so you're right that many people suffer from that, and none more so than academics who feel perfectly comfortable writing an academic paper that will be read by the editor, the two reviewers, and their mom. And that's where it ends. And then that paper languishes for the next 600 years with, with people com completely uninterested in it. Well, why don't you have the courage to get out and if Sam Lawrence contacts you to come on his show, uh, make some time to appear on the show because maybe our show will be watched by a few thousand people and that's a wonderful way for us to share our ideas. So one of the things that I try to do, and I'm starting to see some sort of hopeful changes where universities are now starting to try to institute reward metrics that recognize this outreach, right? Until very recently, I mean, you, you could be the most famous scientist in the public and that's not going to advance you in any way in terms of your academic career. I mean, sure, you're famous, but it doesn't result in literal perks. Your salary doesn't go up. Your teaching load doesn't go down. Well, now universities are starting to recognize, hey, we need to be uh, relevant. The public has to care about what we do. And so now they're starting to encourage that, which I've been doing for many years. Well, the world needs bigger inoculations and so does academics and everything of more Gad Sad's point of view here, <laughs> because I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm super thankful that you said yes to being on the on the show, thank just you. like you said. Um, and uh, I love the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for being on Grow Big Always. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was a fun conversation with Professor Gad Sad. Huge thank you to him. If you haven't been to growbigalways.com and signed up for our weekly alert email, it comes out every Monday. It's pretty short and allows you to see who else is coming up as a guest. I also wanted to take a moment to thank you guys for telling your friends about the show. It's the only way that the word really gets out there for sharing the show on social networks and for loyally listening every single week. So until next time, thanks for listening.